Zasikis, and then we went up to the end of the eight, well, end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century. But now we're going to go back. Guru Nanak was born in 1469, and Chaitanya, who we're going to talk about today, was born in 1486. Mirabai was born in 1498. So this is all the same period. Uh, things are really percolating in India. And, uh, of course, by this time, by the time all these people were born, there's already been almost three centuries of Muslim rule. And uh, all these people are from, well, North India, Chaitanya is in East India, but you could say it's, it's still kind of North India, Bengal. So there's this contact. There's actually Muslim government. And uh, there's all these ideas coming in, these uh, you know, sort of Middle Eastern ideas of monotheism and so on. And there's all kinds of different responses. Some of the responses, as we saw with Kabir, were to kind of, and even Guru Nanak to some extent, to do away with all the visual parts of Hinduism, like no temple deities, uh, or pictures of God. We'll just, you know, we'll also have sort of an invisible monotheistic God, but in the Hindu sense, whatever that means. So, uh, Mirabai. One thing I want to mention uh, as I begin to discuss, we're going to talk about Mirabai and Chaitanya. That is on page 164 of Introducing Hinduism. There's a very interesting statement, which is in regard to Chaitanya, but also applies to Mirabai as well, or many other people we talk about. That is, uh, Professor Rodriguez says, our knowledge of Chaitanya's life is derived from hagiographies. Hagiographies happen. <laughs> and so he... Professor Rodriguez says, our information about his life is derived from hagiographies, embellished, embellished biographies, often of saints, written to promote their divine and extraordinary nature. I couldn't help looking at the word embellished. Actually, think of bello, like Latin, Italian, you know, beautiful, like to in, in, like make pretty, in, you know, bello, so on, bello in Spanish. So embellish, here's a common de uh, definition, to make a statement or story more interesting or entertaining by adding, adding extra details, especially ones that are not true. So, red flag, church and state, especially ones that are not true, and here's the, here's the example of the use of the word in, in a standard dictionary. She had real difficulty telling the truth. She had real difficulty telling the truth because she liked to embellish things. So there's a strong sense of the word embellish is that you add something that's not true because you want to make it sound better. And so going back to the statement uh, I just read, our knowledge of Chaitanya's life is derived from hagiographies, embellished biographies, biographies, Biographies which you say things that aren't true to make it sound better. Uh, often of saints written to promote their divine and extraordinary nature. Now, it's not impossible, at least it's not logically impossible, that there actually are people who have divine qualities. There may or may not be, but uh, to say that a... Now, if we have absolute evidence, like irrefutable evidence, that a hagiography is just saying something that's not true. We have irrefutable historical documentation that this happened, not that. Then you could say it's embellished or changed. But uh, that's not really the case, at least in the case of Chaitanya. It's not so much that we have 
evidence that contradicts or refutes the hagiographies. It's more that in the biographies there are certain sort of very ambitious spiritual claims made that we'll talk about. And so to say that those are embellishments or not embellishments is really beyond scope of serious, uh, religiously non-committed scholarship. Because again, to affirm or deny a religious claim is to make a religious claim. And so I just thought that, uh, well, you know me, I couldn't control myself. I had to talk about that. That embellished, that these are embellished biographies. They've added things. They wanted to make it sound better. So I wasn't sure how scholarly that was. But anyway, Mirabai. So keep that in mind. It's not only Chaitanya, it's also Mirabai because there are different accounts. So uh, she served her husband. You know about Mirabai. You read that, right? You all read it. Very interesting figure, extremely popular, famous figure in Hinduism. She really has captured the imagination of Hindus for many centuries. And um, she's married to a prince, making her a princess. And she's really in love with Krishna. She's really in love with Krishna. And uh, so, now, this story, which I'm not saying is not true, but this story fits a pattern which is already there in one of the most important stories in all of Hinduism, and that is the story of Krishna and his cowherd girlfriends in Vrindavan, where Krishna would play his flute in the middle of the night and call these girls who were madly in love with Krishna. They would, they would leave their homes, these young ladies, and they would run out into the forest. It was a moonlit night, so they could see where they were going. They didn't run into trees. So they would run out into the forest, and they would dance with Krishna. And I mentioned uh, before that uh, that's one of the most famous stories in all of Hinduism called Rasa Leela. Krishna's famous dance where Krishna expanded himself into, well, each gopi got their own Krishna. So there was no waiting. So each gopi got her own Krishna and uh, they danced in, in the moonlight at night, in the middle of the night, in secret. And so here... You have the story of Mira, where she's married to a husband, but she really wants to be with Krishna. So this is a, um, and there are other stories like that. Actually, there, there were. There's a famous story, which is called in in, in, in Hinduism the um, Brahmana Patni Gun, the wives of the Brahmanas who left their families to go to Krishna to bring him what he wanted. In this case, it was food for his boyfriends who were in the forest and were hungry. But, but still, all the male authority figures ordered these ladies, every male authority figure in traditional Hinduism, in other words, their husbands, their fathers, their older brothers, even elders, you know, older grown sons, or every, their brothers, every male authority figure said, don't go, and they went. And so the, the idea is very clear that whether you're a man or a woman, your first duty is to God, not to any other, not to any earthly power. So this, this is a very powerful story. It's, it's a very well-known story. Krishna and the gopis, Krishna with the wives of the Brahmins. So here you have Mirabai thousands of years later, uh, and not only, I mean, even, even the people who are against her kind of suspect, I mean, what are you, what are you doing? Like, are you going to leave your husband? You have this very orthodox, very strict Hinduism, and everyone's ordering her, like, knock it off, you know, too much of this Krishna thing. 
And uh, which is interesting because it's a very common experience in the Hare Krishna when people wanted to go and serve Krishna and you know their family said knock it off. And sometimes even resorted to violent means like hiring sort of these deprogramming goons. It's, it's a whole story we'll talk about later. To actually physically arrest the, the people and, and, and try to uh, psychologically force them to give up this, uh, this devotion. So this gets to another broader point that we talked about with Buddhism and Shramana movements and the Vedic culture and all that stuff we talked about way back when, when you were all much younger. So, which is, like, how, what is the relationship between this world and that world, between your worldly duties and your spiritual duties? So that even in, um, well, that, there was this tension because the Shamanas would say, we're out of here, you know, we're not going to do these fire sacrifices, we're not going to participate necessarily in this very strict social system. And that system is very important. I mean, in order to be a respectable person, you had to honor certain people, and you had to, you know, you had to fit in. You had to take your place. Even even in Europe, you know, before Europe loosened up a bit, you had to know your place. It was you had to know your station. It was considered to be, you know, a, a terrible offense socially to speak improperly to someone above you, or I mean, some people were below you, and so fitting in in the social hierarchy, people take these things very very seriously. And so, opting out of that system, I mean, even in America now, I mean, someone, someone was elected president from, from a minority background, and that was considered to be like, wow, because, you know, it went outside the caste system. Because in America, there's a, a type of unofficial, there was an unofficial caste system, you know, certain people can occupy certain positions. And so, it was like world news that the American caste system has somehow been penetrated or somehow, you know, Something happened outside the caste system. So it's not just ancient India. People all over the world throughout all times become very attached to certain social hierarchies. And um, so we saw it. Where, and then, of course, according to the textbook, there was this reinterpretation of the ashram system, where, let's say, you become a, you're a celibate student, just like at UF, you know, mostly just celibate students. And then... <laughs> And then the next stage of life is um, you get married, and then you renounce. And so when people start renouncing and bypassing family life, then they have this reinterpretation. Okay, these are different stages where when you're young, you do this. You're a student. Then you get married, and then later you can renounce. You don't have to renounce now. Do that later when you get older. And so, again, it's like, what about worldly duties and spiritual commitments? How do you, how do you balance these two? And that was Arjuna's problem in the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna thought that, well, I have this worldly duty to fight this battle, but I think that I'm more inclined now to take up spiritual life, which means I'm out of here. And then the whole Bhagavad Gita, in a sense, is trying to explain to Arjuna how to integrate his spiritual duties with his worldly duties, and how these two fit together. So this is a... When you have a civilization, as India has always been, where there's this very clear awareness that there's another world, there's another dimension, whether you call it nirvana, or vaikuntha, a spiritual world, or, you know, Brahman, however you define it, there is another higher dimension. And, uh, in that higher dimension, or in a higher state of consciousness, we understand that we are not just physical bodies. These bodies, to use the words of the Gita, vasangsi, jirnani, they're just clothes. These are just garments covering the real person. 
in Buddha's uh, second sermon on, well, the non-existence of the soul, which he doesn't say that. But the point, what he does say, is that the different components of the body are the skandhas. Even the psychological components, you know, your mind, your intelligence, not to speak of your arms and legs and the flesh and bones, and these aren't the real self. So everyone agrees, whether it's Shankara or Nagarjuna or Krishna, what everyone does agree on is that the real person or the real non-person or just the real thing, whatever that is, is not Coca-Cola. But that, but that the real thing is not the body. And yet, we have different duties precisely because of our body. In other words, the reason you have to be a faithful wife or a faithful husband or the reason you're supposed to act as a warrior or a merchant is because that's the kind of body you've got. And even the most fanatical, ritualistic brahmanas would admit that, well, in your next life you maybe can, you know, be upwardly mobile, caste-wise. And the devotional movement said you can move up now. Do you want another pen? So, so the idea is that our duties, when you talk about dharma in the Indian system, dharma, uh, first and foremost, what you're talking about is varna and ashram. Your vocation, brahmana, kshatriya, vaisha, shudra, or your brahmachari student, Rahasta householder, retiring couple, vanaprasta, or renounced person. So yeah, but all these varnas and ashrams are coming from the body. It's not that your soul is, you know, there's no such thing. No one really thinks there's such a thing as a warrior soul, or a merchant soul, or a craftsperson soul, or a, you know, married soul, or an unmarried soul. These are bodily designations. And therefore, if the highest truth is beyond the body, if your real identity, whatever it is, is beyond the body, and yet the whole social system is based on the body. And therefore, throughout history, there's always been this tension and negotiations going on and debates about how do you fit these two together? Because if you're not a fully enlightened, fully liberated soul, which is almost everybody, then if you just throw out these moral and social rules, you're just going to get, if possible, something even worse than we have today. So, so the idea is that anarchy is not the answer. And Krishna even says in the Gita that, that if you are, even if you are an enlightened soul, do your duty anyway. That's the whole point to Arjuna, because you have to set an example for other people. Because if unenlightened people don't do their duty, it's just all hell's going to break loose. And the discipline of these duties, the duties are actually designed to support your spiritual quest. In other words, let's say a student had to perform certain austerities or have certain sense control, a certain discipline. That's supposed to support your spiritual quest, your spiritual path. And getting married, Krihasta, you don't just, you know, you know, get married go off to Las Vegas or something. There are all kinds of dharma. There's a Grihasta dharma. There are all kinds of spiritual and religious duties which you have to perform when you get married. So that these different systems, this Varnashram system is meant to engage you where you're at right now, engage you in duties, regulate your life, give you some discipline in such a way that it's moving you toward enlightenment. And yet what happens is, because people are not so spiritual, most people, they become attached to these designations. So rather than seeing, let's say, my position as a Brahmin or Kshatriya 
as simply a service to God and to other people to help me move forward in my own consciousness. It's like, woohoo, I'm a Brahmin. I'm better than everybody else. I get out of my way, I'm a Brahmin. Or I'm the king, man. You know, bow down. So, in other words, people become attached because the more we're attached to our bodies, which none of you would dream of doing, being attached to your bodies, but, but the more we're attached to our bodies, the more we become attached to our bodily designations, our varnanasham, and therefore we, people start to identify with these things, like, I am a Brahmin, I am the king, or I am, you know, the husband of this woman, rather than thinking that I'm really an eternal soul or some kind of eternal thing, whatever, however they define it, and I'm just doing this now as my duty. So you actually identify with the body, you identify with the duty, and then you get a social system where really people are not just serving each other so everybody can move upward. It's really just an old-fashioned materialism, one person trying to do better than another, my family over your family, my kingdom over your kingdom. And so you have these tensions. And, and going to one extreme, one extreme in this system would be, forget the spiritual part, let's just, you know, I really am my varna, I really am my ashram. The other extreme would be, anarchy rules, and everybody everybody into the wilderness. And every, so, neither of these really worked. And so there was, a, there was a middle position, which is that you do your varna and ashram, but, within a, but, but you really focus on the ultimate goal, which is spiritual. Now, in the case of Mirabai, so after that long preface, which takes up a portion of the last one. Now, in that context, Mirabai, here's a person who's testing that middle ground because her external duty, her varna is that she's a kshatriya, which is the feminine word for a warrior, a woman in that class, kshatriya, the long age. And she marries a prince, and her ashram is that she is a... Um, Grihasta, she's she's a wife. So within that social grid, you know, that we did this before, it's like, you know, these are the varnas and these are the ashrams, so everyone so she's here vocationally, so she's in the second. So that's where she is. Whoops. Yeah, got it right. So in other words, everyone has their social location based on varna and ashram. However, she really wants to dedicate herself to Krishna. Which, according to the Vaishnava point of view, is the ultimate eternal goal of life. That's what life is all about. That's why we exist, to give ourselves to God. And so therefore, in wanting to do that, she's, it's the natural right of every soul. It, it's the best possible thing a soul can do. That would be the spiritual Vaishnava point of view. From the point of view of her family, what the heck are you doing? What are you thinking? So there's this conflict, there's this tension. And to what extent is she kind of making peace? To what extent is she... So what's going on? But, that, but that's the context in which Mirabai's life is playing out. And it's funny because she's famous and very beloved in India. I mean, she's a very famous person, although I'd say the vast majority of Hindu families would be absolutely appalled if some lady in their family tried to do a poem Mirabai. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's like everyone honored Mother Teresa, but if you find out someone in your family actually wants to move to Calcutta and do that, it's like, can we talk about that? So, anyway, 
Now, regarding hagiography, there are different versions. One version is she served her husband dutifully. And then uh, folklore suggests she didn't do so and even refused to accept the prince as her husband. So there are different versions of this. One is kind of like Bhagavad Gita, do your duty, but think of Krishna. And the other one, no, she was really feisty and, and a heroine, and she just like didn't, you know, she was against the whole thing. So these are different versions. Spent her time in devotion to Krishna, her family didn't approve, her family became increasingly disapproving. And then this amazing story where Akbar, the emperor, now there's another thing of Hagiography, did Akbar really disguise himself, you know, like Prince and the Pauper thing? Did Akbar really disguise himself and come secretly to her and then leave an, uh, you know, some jeweled thing at her feet? Well, it's a great story. Whether it happened or not, we don't know, but it's a great story. So, and that, they were furious about that because, oh my God, it's an extremely, extremely uh, conservative society. And the fact that some guy gave you jewelry, you're a married woman and some guy gave you jewelry, and it looks like Muslim jewelry, and we hate Muslims, and you can see where this is going. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a... Uh, it's going to break out into a melee here. So then, her family tried to kill her twice. That's another legend. Maybe it happened. And there's precedent for that also. Because we, I, in fact, told the story of Prahlad, the five-year-old boy whose father was a uh, gold cushion, Hiranyakashipu. And... Um, that was the original James Bond movie, Gold Cushion. So, so his father also tried to poison him, tried to kill him. So these are sort of like, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It could mean that when you're trying to kill someone, you know, stay within your tradition. There are certain traditional ways you try to assassinate someone in your family. But in any case, there are precedents for this. There are, there, you know, there are great stories. Everybody, every Hindu knew these stories that are kind of played out again, either in a hagiography, which someone kind of embellished, or it really happened. Finally, she ends up in Vrindavan, which is the, that's the land of Krishna, where everyone, in their own way, is devoted to Krishna in Vrindavan. And uh, devotes herself, writes all these beautiful songs and so on. There's one story which is somewhat controversial and, that, and it involves a, um, one of the greatest poets and one of the greatest, uh, I think, one of the greatest theologians in Indian history, Rupa Goswami, whom we're going to talk about very soon. And the story is that uh, even learned sadhus would come to her for inspiration. There's a story of one respected spiritual master, this is Rupa Goswami, who refused to speak to Mirabai because she was a woman. Mirabai replied, there was only one real man in Vrindavan, Krishna. Everyone else was a gopi of Krishna. Coward girl. On hearing this, the spiritual teacher accepted the wisdom of Mirabai and agreed to talk to her. Later, Mirabai would become his student, Dhatrupa Goswami, so, uh, who was a great devotee of Chaitanya. And, uh, amazing figure, Rupa Goswami. Anyway, so, what sounds a little spurious about this story, they might have met in, on the other side, on the Chaitanya side, the Rupa side, the story is not told. And so, uh, but what does sound a little off, out of focus about the story, not that they meant at all, but that Rupa would refuse to speak to her because she was a woman, because actually Rupa, would, and there were six Goswamis, he was one of them. Uh, he was the leader of six great saints in Vrindavan. And um, he was actually quite liberal and was very much beloved by all the even the common people. So the idea that he wouldn't talk to a woman 
doesn't at all sound like Rupa. The idea that she said there's only one real Max, everybody else is a Gopi, is also not... Uh, let's get into this now. Okay, I'll get into this now. And then it'll lead us into Chaitanya. It's not at all the Vaishnava position in any respected text or in any really respected Sampradaya tradition that there are only Gopis in Vrindavan, only coward girls. Uh, actually, <clears throat> when Krishna appeared thousands of years ago, if you believe that Krishna appeared, in Vrindavan, uh, there were, he had boyfriends, he had girlfriends, he had his parents, Nanda Jashoda, he had aunts and uncles, he had, he was beloved by everyone in the village. It was a very tight, loving village, and he had, and, and so the, the actual theology within the Vaishnav tradition is that if you devote yourself to Krishna, and if you actually are promoted to that world where Krishna eternally lives, that you have your choice of any spiritual form you like. You can be a boyfriend of Krishna, a girlfriend of Krishna. You can be in a paternal relationship with Krishna. You can be like a servant of Krishna. And so we're going to have a whole class on this, this rasa theory, the different kinds of relationships with God. So to say that everyone in Vrindavan is a gopi is, <clears throat> there actually is a group that said that, but they're the bad guys. Sahajya. Uh, and uh, it was a group that, there was a group actually that, uh, got into some kinky stuff like orgies uh, in imitation of Rasa Leela, which was not a... Where did Rasa Leela go? Oh, there it is. There, 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 there have been people who took advantage of or exploited this theology of intimacy and passionate love of God and Krishna's own activities basically to exploit women. And this still goes on in Vrindavan because there's a custom where, uh, frankly, sort of the dark side of the forest operating still in India... I mean, there's a lot of good things in India, but there are some things you wouldn't want to happen, like mistreatment of, of widows, so that when, let's say, a man dies and a woman is widowed, and, the, and among very conservative Hindus, a woman should marry again, and therefore she's just a high-ticket item, we've got to maintain her, so wouldn't you like to go to Vrindavan and just devote yourself to Krishna at your expense? And so they kind of shuttle these, some, I mean, obviously most Hindu families don't do this, but some of them do, they send the widows off to Vrindavan, they live very poorly. You know, in other words, they, yeah, you can live as, as, as a sadhvi, a saintly woman, which means doesn't cost very much, and just live in Vrindavan. And what happens is uh, there are certain very low, slimy men that exploit these women and basically become like pimps, to use the uh, simple word for it, and sort of rent these women out to different people. And so this is something which actually goes on. And, uh, yes? Before we go too far from that point about, uh, is it not Vaishnava theology where the only male is like... No, no, that's, no, the word prakriti is a female word, but the word jiva is a male word in Sanskrit. So to say everyone is female because everyone is God's prakriti or energy or shakti. No, I mean, we've heard that said, but it's not, strictly speaking... So he, he's like, God's yeah, well, not yeah. the only male and everyone else. No, no, God's not the only male. I mean, what about Nanda, his father? What about all his friends, male friends? So, anyway, the idea that we're all females, there were all kinds of perversions that went on. Uh, well, this is, this is where I'm getting at. You read in your book, let's say about Chaitanya, that in, in comparison to the sort of cool, reserved devotion of the Bhagavad Gita, sort of like this urbane bhakti, that in the case of Chaitanya and other people, there's this passionate 
you know, yearning for God and very emotional bhakti. And scholars always say this. But they don't say, at least most of them because they don't know the tradition that well, is that that passionate emotional bhakti is considered within the tradition to be a symptom of a pure soul. In other words, those, those are the emotions of a soul who's been completely purified of material desires. And that until one comes to the point of being purified of material desires, one is not supposed to make a spectacle of oneself by you know, wailing and howling and devotion, necessarily, but actually by seriously practicing bhakti yoga, which is a disciplined practice. And, and there is, in fact, there are uh, two stages. Last look at the diagram. I'm surprised you all don't bring in little, you know, digital cameras and record these things. So, there's one stage called sadhana bhakti, which means practicing devotion. And the other, or it's also called vaiti bhakti, according to the rules. Vaiti, and then there's raganuga. Raga means passion, which, which means you serve God according to your emotion and your passion. This raganuga stage is considered a very advanced stage. And so when you have people who think that the emotional, passionate stuff, Krishna's, Leela, you know, boys and girls, dancing at night, this is really cool, and they're not purified, what you end up with is a lot of perversion of the tradition. People, the actual followers, say, of Chaitanya, the actual followers of the Vaishnava tradition were extremely uh, strict on moral issues. They were extremely strict, in fact, uh, more so than regular people. But so not only the, the pimping of widows or, or, or the exploitation of, of prostituting of widows in Vrindavan, but uh, all kinds of uh, very materialistic activities have gone on in the name of this emotional devotion because they forgot to mention, as our book, in fact, forgets to mention, that within the tradition, this very emotional stage was considered to be the final perfect advanced stage not to be imitated, never to be imitated by souls that still have material desires. Now, there is, of course, ecstatic kirtan, chanting and so on, and, and many traditions do that, including the Sikhs, and, you know, chanting the names of God and so on. But, apart from the ecstatic kirtan, in terms of one's regular life, one is supposed to be strict, follow principles, practice devotion, and as, as the soul becomes purified, the natural ecstasy of the soul awakens. But without understanding that, there have been all kinds of weird things that have gone on, even in Vrindavan thinking that, okay, you know, it's just for everybody. The process would be very emotional, very passionate. But there's a lot more to it. Yes? This is one. You mentioned that it doesn't take long if there's a girl in the city to be a woman, and then you just mentioned that the Chaitanya followers were very strict, and he was a sannyasi, so it's possible that maybe he would refuse to see a woman. Well, but but it's not. The descriptions of him biographically say that he was actually very kind to people in general. So, uh, and I don't think he would refuse to see her, and I don't think Mirabai would have said that there are only gopis in Vrindavan, because surely she must know that there are many other people in Vrindavan, even when Krishna was living there. Now, any questions on that? If not, uh, as usual, we have lots of things to cover. Another point, uh, another thing that Professor Rodriguez said that um, I thought was uh, a little out of focus. He, 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 I think he really was sort of inspired talking about bhakti. He, there's some there's some real eloquence there, but then he, I think, got a little too inspired. And he said, page 163, a sincere love for and devotion to the divine 
however divinity may be conceived, however divinity may be conceived, and in whatever manner that worship might take is regarded as leading the devotee to the absolute, as it truly is, and to liberation. In the Gita, although the Gita's teachings promote Krishna as the supreme deity, they also pave the way for any conception of divinity to be, quote, substitutes for or superimposed upon the absolute. For, uh, for instance, in his interpretation of the Gita, the influential 11th century philosopher Abhinavagupta points out how Krishna offers guidance for a liberation, moksha, that is, absorption in Lord Shiva. Absorption in Lord Shiva. Now, uh, Abhinavagupta was a tantric. He practiced tantra, and apparently he really practiced. I mean, all the way. So, the claim is being made here that according to the Gita, any approach basically leads to the same thing, leads to the same conclusion. And now you have a Gupta who wanted absorption, which in Sanskrit is called Sayuja Mukti. Anyway, anyway, it's interesting. And it was the Shiva. Now, so, and, and it was the Shiva, so it doesn't matter who your object is, and it doesn't matter what kind of liberation it is, and that's what the Gita is teaching. And it's all the same. Is that what the Gita teaches? Well, no, not at all. The Gita actually teaches a middle ground. It's not a fanatical teaching that this is the only way, and if you don't do this, you're going to hell, and you'll have to listen to public radio fundraising drives forever. It's a very severe form of torture. So it's not, it's not that, but it's also not like whatever you want. It's all the same. It's, it's neither extreme. It is a principled inclusivism. It includes everything. It includes everything, but according to certain principles, logical principles. And the logical principles are explained in the Gita. So there's one section in, in chapter 7, uh, chapter 7, verses 19 through 24, if you haven't sold your book yet. So I'm just going to translate those very quickly so you can see what it says. Uh, Krishna says, after many births, one who finally gets knowledge surrenders to me, realizing that I'm everything. And then Krishna says, Kamais Taistahitagyana, those whose knowledge has been stolen or taken away by material desires surrender to other deities. In other words, uh, if you surrender to other deities, then he says, if you do that, if instead of coming to me you approach other forms of the divine, then Krishna, and, and with faith you worship those other forms of the divine, uh, then Krishna says, I will give you unmoving, literally unmoving faith in whatever you wanted to worship. And then you'll get what you wanted. Because the idea is, again, remember Vedanta, the uh, second sutra of Vedanta, that Janmadyasya, that everything comes from the Absolute. And the Upanishads teach this. So because everything is coming from the Absolute, everything is a manifestation of the Absolute. So whatever you worship, in a sense, you're worshiping God, but it may be what Krishna calls Abhidhi Purvakam. It's not direct, it's indirect, because rather than worshipping the source itself, you're worshipping something which came from that source, and according to the doctrine of Satkaryavad, which we discussed in regard to all those guys back then, Vedanta, the effect is present... No. Okay, take two. The cause is present in the effect. 
The cause is present in the effect. So because the world comes from God, God is present in the world. So if you worship any particular thing, it is an expansion of God, but it doesn't mean you're directly worshiping the actual source of everything, but you still get points, you, know, you still get some credit. You don't win the grand prize, but you get a you know, home version of the game or something. So that, that you're still in some way worshiping God, and rather than fanatically punish you or burn you forever for having made that mistake, you're actually encouraged and given credit. Good, you're on the right track. You acknowledge something's greater than yourself. You're worshiping some aspect of God's creation. So just keep going and gradually, you know, come to the highest understanding. So it's an encouraging, inclusive attitude, but it doesn't mean that everything's the same. For example, in chapter 12, Arjuna directly asks Krishna, those who personally devote themselves to you and those who accept you as something impersonal, like the impersonal Brahman, which really knows yoga better? And Krishna says, those who are devoted have actually understood me. However, the other people will also eventually get there. It just takes more time and it's a lot more trouble because they're kind of trying to put a square peg in a round hole in the sense that we're really eternal persons, but we're trying to not be persons and... You have to work through that desire to depersonalize yourself and eventually come to accept yourself as an eternal person. So that's what the Gita is actually teaching. Uh, whether or not you believe it, that's what the Gita teaches. And so in one of our books, I, I think it was the book on, uh, well, I can't remember which book it was. One of our books said that there's, there's a very common thing in Hinduism, which I've observed hundreds of times. And that is that because the Gita is so loved and everyone likes there's a tendency that whatever someone's philosophy is to say, well, yeah, Krishna teaches this in the Gita. And, uh, or to say the Gita is supporting my view on this or that. And you look in the Bhagavad Gita and just really scour all the verses, you can't find it for the life of you. So, there's a very kind, and here, our textbook kind of did that, where Krishna's teaching now that everything's all the same, which is not at all what Krishna's teaching. Again, in chapter 9, verses 22 through 26, uh, those who devote themselves to other deities, worshiping with faith, they're really worshiping me, but they're doing it irregularly. become literally irregularly. They haven't quite understood how things stack up. But because God is everything, in that sense they're worshiping God, but not directly by recognizing the actual identity of the source of everything. So, and then Krishna says, Janti Deva Prata Devan. Those who devote themselves to the gods, small g, plural gods, go to the gods. It's like you get, you know, we, we went over this before. Those who uh, devote themselves to the forefathers, go to the forefathers, and so on and so forth. So it's not that everything, I had to point that out because our textbook kind of uh, muddied the waters a little bit. And then uh, one last thing, well, maybe two last things. Uh, about Chaitanya directly. We really should talk more about him maybe next time, but um, he was... Okay, this I have to mention. Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, there are some very famous verses in the Bhagavad Gita, which every Hindu knows, practically, or used to know. And so if you start quoting the verses, they kind of chime in, if they, they finish it with you, which is, that Krishna says in chapter 4, whenever uh, Dharma is collapsing and Adharma is rising, I come, I descend as an avatar. And so, uh, Krishna says there that I come, yuge yuge, which means in every age, in every great age. 
And so in every age there's the idea also that Krishna brings a dharma, a special path or spiritual process meant especially for the conditions in that yuga. You may remember that in each yuga, uh, the duration of life, virtue, all kinds of things diminish by a quarter in every great age, every yuga. So by the time you get to Kali Yuga, this uh, age that we have the honor of living in, things are really uh, bad. And so every age having different conditions has its own special dharma that's called Yuga Dharma. And Chaitanya is accepted by his followers as being the Yuga Avatar, the Lord's descent, where Krishna says, Krishna says, I come in every Yuga and bring a particular dharma to that age. And so the followers of Chaitanya accept that he is the avatar for this age. And he brought the dharma for this age, which actually, as Guru Nanak also said, is, is chanting or singing or remembering the names of God. That that is the yuga dharma. I mean, obviously you can do other things. Other things are also beneficial. But the central process, liberating process, is chanting the names of God, which is found practically throughout world religion. So it's not something which is unique to one teacher. So that is the Yuga Dharma, and he is the Yuga Avatar, according to his followers. And, he, and they accept him as Krishna. So Chaitanya is seen as Krishna himself in this age. Hey, a few more minutes, so don't panic. Uh, we'll get out of time. Now, one thing it said in our book, Chaitanya began to emphasize that the attitude of devotion should be akin to that displayed by Krishna's mythic lover Radha. Only in this sense. When Krishna was about 12 years old, he left Vrindavan. And uh, the people he grew up with were separated from him. And in separation from Krishna, they exhibited the most intense love. It's like when you know, if you love someone very much and that person is gone, if you lose that person, that's when you really feel it. That's when you really feel it. And um, so when Krishna left, the gopis, the coward girls, his boyfriends, the older people, everyone was just, it's ever thrown into an ocean of lamentation. And so there's a particular kind of devotion which is considered the most intense or most advanced form of bhakti or devotion, uh, which is called viraha bhakti. Viraha in Sanskrit means separation. It's like two lovers that are separated and can think of nothing else. In a sense, if you're always with the person, you can even get tired of someone that you once fell in love with. That actually has happened before on this planet. But sometimes when you're in love with someone and for some reason you're separated from them, then you really can't forget them, because you're separated from them, and you're just thinking when you can get back to them. So, the idea is that the more intensely we love God, love God, the more we naturally transcend our selfish desires, and so Chaitanya taught this love and separation, which was not only from Radha, his girlfriend, but also from other people. So, uh, Chaitanya, as, as we'll discuss, maybe next time I forgot to look at the syllabus, but... Uh, he didn't just teach everybody should be like a gopi. He didn't just teach that everyone should you know, have that kind of conjugal relationship. In fact, also, uh, about Chaitanya, it said, this caught my eye, in appearance and lifestyle, Chaitanya was a renouncer, but unlike the unemotional states that seemed to characterize sannyas, Chaitanya's inner world was a passionate love affair with God. The idea is that, in a sense, people take sannyas, from the Vaishnava point of view, because they're too romantic to get married. In that, uh, in that, if if you have this very romantic idea of true love, perfect ideal love, it's hard to find in this world, as you will increasingly notice. And so the idea is that 
the real renunciation of this world comes when one loves God, as in the case of Mirabai. So the idea of sort of a dry renunciation, like this world stinks, I'm out of here. It's not just that. As Krishna explains in the Gita, and we discuss this, it's when you have a higher taste, when you experience something greater, that you give up something lesser. That's painless renunciation, when you've actually found something better in your life. So according to the Vaishnava point of view, it's those who have the greatest emotional attachment to God who can most easily give up their attachment to things in this world. So that's the... Any questions on any of this? And Chaitanya, by the way, who taught that we should all be like female, you know, Christian's girlfriends. I mean, two of Chaitanya's favorite stories, according to the biographies, were stories of Dhruva and Prahlad, were not gopis, were not... In other words, he didn't just teach everyone to be very emotional and, and love Krishna as if you were a lady. And he's the man. It was actually a very sophisticated philosophy, a very sophisticated theology, which brings you step by step through different levels of spiritual advancement. And it's often what you get in textbooks, especially uh, surveys, is, is really a caricature of the actual system. And so I think it's actually we're going to start to go into some of the details of, of what is really one of the most sophisticated theologies in the world. So, uh, yeah, please come on Friday, even though it's Friday. Thank <laughs> you.